Today's topic is how to be unified. How to be unified. What does the Bible teach us about how to be unified? And what does that mean? So before I get started, let me ask you, what do you think it means to be unified? What is unity? Or what is not unity? Perhaps if you prefer. I think unity is not arguing and judging one another, even if we have differences of opinions. And I think it's Having unity is about having a godly standard and trying to draw alongside that standard rather than having our own standard. There you go. Um, it's mean not to discriminate each other, whether in colour or um, differences of opinion, like the previous sister said, or anything that's, you know, we need to, um, I think, just accepting each other. It brings a lot of unity. As long as we're not sinning, we could accept each other's the differences, like um, the sister said before. So discrimination is a big one, I think, as well. Not discriminating each other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, uh, it's such a, I was going to say it's a hot topic right now. Of course, it is a, a particularly yeah. hot topic right now, but it's it's an ongoing challenge, and it's something that we've got to deal with, not only yes, in the world, is. but we've also got to make sure in the church. That, yes, absolutely. that we really understand what that means, what yeah. discrimination means, and what um, ha ha racial and, and ethnic harmony look like. Yeah, unity for me is like a hand. I've got five individual fingers, but they are joined together by the softness of the palm. So, as individuals, we might be hard on the outside, but as long as we focus on the gentleness and the softness, we are all one and not individuals just by the fingers the opposite of divided one together in strength and friendship simon or pat patricia being of one mind believing in the same things peaceable peaceable you kind of know unity when you see it don't you and unity is peaceable and cooperative that's true any more i believe that um Unity, unity can only come when we've got one, when we're unified over the goal. We've got one unified goal, one place we're all going to, one, one direction we're all going. Um, yes. It's hard to have unity without that clear um, unified goal. The word in Psalm 133 for unity is a Hebrew word, yachad or yachad, Y-A-H-A-D or Y-A-C-H-A-D. That's the, the Hebrew word there. And it means together, along with, in close proximity to, in concord with, by and uh, meaning close association in relationship, or the word unity. I, some translations of this verse use the word harmony. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in harmony. And I must admit, I like that word more than the word unity. There's nothing wrong with the word unity, but... And since it looks like what's being expressed here is primarily relational harmony, I like as a better word, living together in harmony. So we'll look at um, a couple of points here and then we'll have our discussion breakout rooms. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to risk giving you <clears throat> quite a lot of material to think about. I hope that's okay. It's just that there is so much one could talk about on the topic of unity. Uh, I've had to narrow it down somewhat for today. But I still want to give us enough to think about, not only today, but perhaps in the days to come, which might help us with our own personal Bible study or thinking about what it really means to be unified.
So let's just think about the fact that Jesus had a vision for oneness of the people who followed him. John chapter 17 and verse 22, Jesus prayed that, that famous prayer, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. In that prayer, Jesus does use the word unity, but he uses the word one more often. So what he's praying for is oneness. And again, I like that idea. There's a oneness, which is about a heart thing, not necessarily a structural thing. It's really important that we have that oneness. At the beginning of this verse, it says how good and pleasant it is when God's people, of course the Hebrew was brothers, but it would apply to God's people, how, when they live together in unity. And the phrase there is live together. Now it's one thing to be unified with people that you don't see very often, but there's a different level when you might be living on top of each other. So I have a way of illustrating this today, and I don't really know this is going to work. I've never done this before, so um, bear with me. It's a bit like this. Okay, It's about family, living together in unity. So let's say we have mum and dad, uh, Abraham and Sarah, or something like that. So they, they get together, they get married, and, and they build their house. Right, so we'll have them. This is where I really ought to have Osa doing this for me, right? But uh, ne next time I'll ask him to do it. So we have mum and dad, and of course they have children, and uh, they they they're very happy to have. Let's say they have two sons. So we need to expand. Oh dear. Uh, okay, we need to expand the compound here a little bit. So they now have their their two sons, and they're all living together. Now, as their two sons mature, what do the mum and dad want for them? They want them to find their own wives and families. And so let's say son number one, he, he's the one with the tie. He's the most responsible one. We'll take him off for a minute. He goes off to a nearby village. And what does he find in the nearby village? He finds a lovely, responsible and loving wife. And he brings her home to the family. Because that's what you did in those days. You bring your wife back home to the family home. Now, it's getting a bit tight in here. So what we need to do is we need to build an extension. Some of us have ex experience of this building extensions so we need they'll they'll need their own extension um, but they don't leave the family home compound they stay there they have their own bit son number two he goes off to another nearby village he finds a lovely wife they come home now they need their own extension so let's let them move there so things are expanding they have but what happens with these couples of course now that they are wonderfully married they start having children now, I ran out of humanoid figures, so forgive me if uh, I have a bear here or something. don't know what that is. Oh, it's a dog. Uh, I don't know what this is with black spots. I have no, I have no idea. But, you know, they, and families were large in those days. I think that's a hippopotamus. That's a bunny rabbit. Um, and I think that's a pink elephant. Anyway, so let's say they have uh, five children. And the other couple, they have, I think that's a rat. <laughs> Anyway, whatever, uh, a frog, um, a bear, and a, oh, a panda. Of course you'd have a panda. Why wouldn't you? Um, but that's, that's obviously a bit, bit tight in there. So they need to expand a little bit. Let's let them expand, and let's let them expand. In fact, they need room for the children to run around, so that we're going to need to move the walls out a little bit. And poor old mum and dad here are, are going to have to have a bit of a smaller space, I think, to make this work. Uh, so... Yes, no, they need room to run around. 
they can they can all run around together, right? All the kids can run around and play and have fun. But it's getting a little crowded in this compound, but they're all still together. Now, it's it's one thing to have children that uh, grow up and move out. And our daughter, as you know, got married last year and our son's moving out next weekend, wow. actually. Um, it's one thing for that. But what about if they were all together? What about if you had, now you started with mum and dad, two boys, wives, 10 children between them. What have we got now? 10, 12, 14, 16 people now in this compound. What's going to happen? What's going to happen is they're all going to be in each other's pockets and, and, and seeing each other and talking and meeting. And these kids are going to have an argument. And then these kids are going to have an argument. And then mum and dad are going to have an argument with one of their sons or daughters. And they're going to be bumping up against each other all yeah. the time. See, what we're talking about, about living together in unity is not about just having a conceptual idea of do we like each other. We're talking about what happens when we actually live together and we do life together. And when you do life together, you annoy each other. Maybe not in your house. Maybe your house is more righteous than mine, but, or, or at least me. But, um, but this is what happens. And this is the picture of God's people, not just a household. It's a picture of God's people all involved in each other's lives in a spiritual compound, I suppose you might say, within the kingdom of God. And then how do we deal with the fact that this life, while it has its advantages and, and the beauty of it and, and the creativity that comes with all these different connections, how do we handle the fact that we're not going to see everything the same way? How do we handle the fact we're going to have arguments and problems? And let me just say this. If a church doesn't have problems, it probably doesn't have real unity because it doesn't have this kind of interaction. So any group that's a real family is going to have problems. That's a fact. It's more about how do we handle it. The goal is not to avoid having a problem. The goal is to work it out so that it can be something beautiful and creative and glorious for God. Unity is tested by proximity. Unity is tested by proximity. When we're working together, doing life together, when we've got a common goal, like Barry talked about, we're working towards something for God's glory. And when we're working together on it, that's when our unity, our harmony is tested. This psalm, of course, is one of the psalms of ascent as they went up to Jerusalem on their pilgrimage. And you can imagine that if they're traveling together all the way to Jerusalem from their local village, which might have taken a week or two or more, their unity would be tested as a family unit or as a village unit traveling all that way. I think maybe that's part of the reason this psalm is in here is to remind them how beautiful it is when they are unified on their journey to Jerusalem and how wonderful it's going to be when they get to Jerusalem and are unified with all the villages, all the towns, all the tribes of Israel coming together to Jerusalem to worship. How wonderful that's going to be but they need to come with the right spirit of harmony or a great festival together is going to be nothing more than a religious event rather than a celebration of the beauty of the unity that God creates from people who truly love him and are willing to love one another he says then not only is it like uh, when they live together but it says he says it's like precious oil now I haven't got an illustration for this I'm not going to pour oil on my head or anybody else's head uh, Penny, I, I, in, no, okay, maybe not. Um, so, but he says like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, beards today. Yeah, Joe's beard. Okay, let's imagine that. 
running down Joe's beard, running down on the collar of his robe. Bit messy, but what's going on here? Oh, just briefly, oil in the Old Testament, the idea is it's the it's a way of, of honoring somebody. It's used in priestly anointing, but it also was, would be used when someone visits your house, you have a guest and they come in and you offer them oil because it's been a hot and dusty journey. And so they might put oil on their head. It might be perfumed. Um, often at a special banquet, you'd put a, um, a, I'm trying to think of the right word. Um, uh, ah, it's like a pyramid shaped piece of waxy oil on someone's head. And then you'd, uh, it would melt because the head warmth would gradually melt it and it's perfumed. And so gradually through the meal, this perfumed oil would drip down from your head on your face and, and down on, on your clothes. And it was very, very smelly in those places in those times, right? Uh, they had no deodorant and stuff. So it was a way of making everybody smell nice and look nice. So it was a, a way of beautifying. It was a way of improving how people uh, looked to each other and how they smelt to each other uh, at, a, at a banquet. And it, we, we see that in Psalm 23. Uh, he anoints my head with oil. It's about hospitality, it's about love, it's about respect, it's about doing something beautiful for somebody. And it's the precious oil, it's not just your standard oil. In other words, it's the oil you bring out when you have guests. It's a bit like if you have someone stay with you, you put out the nice soap. Do you? Well, I think, well, we do. Uh, we have ordinary soap for me and Penny, whatever, right? But when guests come, they get the nice soap and the nice towels and all that kind of stuff. And we make do with the ones with holes in. And um, No, 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 we don't. No, I'm sorry. No, I'm just kidding. We don't have any with holes in. Um... But you bring out the nice stuff, right? And so it's the precious oil. And you saying that's what unity is like in God's kingdom. It's not like unity elsewhere. It's not like the unity of a football team or a, or a political party, which, you know, there is some unity there. But it's something on another level. It's beautiful. And it's, yeah, just wonderful. And then he talks about Hermon, Mount Hermon and uh, Mount Zion. It's like the dew of Mount Hermon falling on Mount Zion. What's going on here? So uh, I'll show you a picture. So that's Mount Hermon, and as you can see, it's got snow on it, and it's one of the few mountains in that area that has snow all year round. It is, how high is it? 2,800 meters tall, snow all year round, and if you go up there, even when there isn't a, a lot of snow, uh, the top of the mountain is very uh, misty most of the time, and it's so misty. It's that kind of very heavy mist, so if you walked up there, you would get wet, wet through, not from rain, but from the mistiness. Have you ever been up a, maybe like a Scottish mountain or some of the mountains in Wales would be like this, Brecon Beacons or Snowdonia, where you go up at a, particularly in the autumn perhaps, or the, the spring or the winter, and, and you walk there and you just get wet from the dew. So it's like, it's so soaking wet, it's so dewy, you get wet. It's that kind of image here. It's not just a little bit of dew on the ground. It soaks you. And the contrast is with Mount Zion, and Mount Zion is Jerusalem, and, Mount, and Jerusalem has no water source of its own. It doesn't have any rain. It doesn't have any meaningful amounts of rain falling on it. It has to import its water. So, uh, as you may know, um, various people dug tunnels. Most famously, Hezekiah got a tunnel dug uh, from outside the walls of Jerusalem, so that they could have wa water in the town, in the city, when the city was under siege. And indeed, they then found, they found that not long ago, uh, but then they more recently found another tunnel built by Canaanites. Let me show you. Okay, I've got something else to show you here. This is a video. 
This is Douglas Jacobi, some of you will know. Penny and I were in Israel 18 months ago now, nearly two years ago, nearly two years ago, on a tour, and we went down to the tunnels. And Penny went through Hezekiah's tunnel. In fact, let me run this on. I've taken the audio off just to show you something here. So Penny went down Hezekiah's tunnel, which is much more narrow and almost completely dark, and I'm a little bit more claustrophobic. So I went on this tunnel, which is a little bit more open, and this is the Canaanite tunnel. Uh, the Hezekiah's tunnel was built in the 700s BC. It's 533 meters long, and it's, it's, it's a way of getting water into the city. And this is a Canaanite tunnel, which is about 120 meters long, 390 feet. Uh, this was excavated around 1800 BC, which I think is the Bronze Age, if I'm right. Can you imagine digging through solid rock in the Bronze Age? I mean, this this was a hard thing to do. In Hezekiah's time, too, they were digging through solid rock, not, dig, not digging into the earth underground, but digging through solid rock. So this is the Canaanite tunnel through which they brought water. Um, 1800 BC, so almost 4,000 years ago, this was dug and being used by the Canaanites who inhabited the land before the Israelites and before David made Jerusalem his, uh, if you like, his capital city. So what, the reason I'm showing it is, is that water on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, where the pilgrims are going to the temple, was a prized commodity. It was a real, I mean, you, you took your own water. You, water was something that was scarce. You had to take care of it very carefully. Perhaps some of us have visited parts of the world where water is very, very precious. So the idea of the, the unity he's talking about here is something that is precious, something that is needed, something that you're thirsty for, something uh, that you have to prepare for, that you look for the resources and in, you're in a dry and thirsty land, you need that unity, you want that unity, it is available, but you've got to go find it, you've got, and when you get it, you want to preserve it and keep it, as Paul talks about in the New Testament, keep the unity of the Spirit, preserve the unity the Spirit has given you, we are given what we need, God gives us what we need, but it's up to us to preserve it, to maintain it, and to thrive within it, and be able to spread it to other people. So that's the kind of idea that we're talking about here with the, uh, the image of the living together, the oil, the precious oil, and the dew on Mount Zion. That's a blessing. That's where the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. This unity is connected with life, life evermore, life everlasting, eternal life, life in the spirit for a new covenant person. So that's what we're dealing with here today. Okay, enough, enough of the tunnel. Let me go back. Let me go back here. So that's the background. All right. So in other words, let me sum that up and give us two things to think about, and then we're going to have our breakout rooms. In other words, church, and we're talking here about God's people, right, in, the, in, in Psalm 133, so by extension, church for us today. Church fellowships, church groups, it's not an institution. We are not an institution with functions. We're a family with relationships. What we do together must must work together as family and be about relationships, not institutions, uh, not functions. We, we function together hopefully well, but it's not about the functions. It's about the, the, the unity and the harmony of the relationships. This is what it's about. It's not about the structures. It's not about agreeing on everything, as somebody mentioned earlier. It's not about agreeing on everything. It's not about doing all the things the right way that we prefer them to be done, either within our church or even between congregations of faith. We don't have to do everything the same way. In fact, if we did, I think that would be problematic. 
It's not about believing exactly the same things on, on every doctrine or every area of Scripture. We certainly need to have commonality of thought about Jesus and his lordship, but not every detail matters. It's about the refreshment. It's about the preciousness. It's about doing life together in a way that is beautiful and creative. Now, with that in mind, I'd like us to read a scripture together, and uh, and and then we will, well, two scriptures, and then we'll break up. Firstly, now let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. This might be the most significant passage, single passage, on Christian relationships in the New Testament. There are lots of great scriptures, but this might be, in terms of a passage, the most significant. And we won't read the whole of chapter 4. We haven't got time. But we'll dip into this. And let me ask you to reflect on this in our breakout rooms. God's vision for harmony comes about when we tell the truth, not lies. God's vision for harmony comes about when we tell the truth, not lies. Ephesians 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And now skip down to verse 14 just for today. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together, by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And one more part, verse 25. Verse 25. Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Great passage about relationships and about the way we treat one another in love, with truth, with gentleness. That's what it's about. It's about speaking, it's about truth, it's about love, doing so gently. And just to add to that, of course, it does mean, as I think was it Kate mentioned at the beginning, that it also means that we don't judge each other with a condemnatory spirit. If this is going to work, what he talks about here in Ephesians 4, we mustn't rush to judgment. Matthew 5 verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Matthew 7 verses 1 and 2 warns us against judging one another, because in the same way we will be judged. The goal is experiencing God's love through trust and respect. 
Therefore, we don't condemn one another, remembering that none of us are superior to anybody else. We trust each other's motives. We give each other the benefit of the doubts, but we do still speak love. And this is across all congregations and across all members. And it includes, this is flat, right? In terms of, say, leaders and people who aren't recognized as a leader, there's no difference. We speak the truth and love to one another, and we trust one another. If leaders can't trust the members, it means they don't trust the Spirit of God, because the Spirit of God is in everybody. So we've got to trust one another the best we can. And when we have problems, then we sort it out by talking gently and lovingly in truth. And the, and the wonderful thing about this is we can do it cheerfully. This isn't always easy, but mercy can be offered cheerfully. Romans 12, 8. If, if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. We can be cheerful. Right, I'm going to stop there. I've spoken enough. Let me break us into breakout rooms. I'll make the rooms maybe three or four people, not too big, and we can have some discussion for 10 minutes, and then we'll come back together. And let me know what you think here about what it means to you to be harmonized. As you can see behind us, there's a harp because we're musical, and we both played in... Um, in orchestras, or uh, I mean, until my my thumbs gave up. Um, but in playing in an orchestra, um, people think that uh, you spend if you're sitting there uh, watching the conductor all the time, as well as your music, and that's what's, what's you spend as much time, if not more, listening to the other people around you as you do watching the conductor, and that's what gives the harmony, the unity of an orchestra as a whole. That is such a superb point. I mean, I sang in choirs all my through my youth, and it's the same thing. You, you're listening to one another. That's what makes the difference between a, a an, an, an mediocre choir and a really good one. Is actually listening, not so much singing. Great point. One of the things about unity is that it is helped by speaking the truth in love, and it is helped by uh, mercy rather than condemnation. And beyond that, it's helped by us being involved in each other's lives in a way that is helpful. And so the question is not, what can I do to help, but what do you need? So when we're responding to another person's need, rather than, I like doing this, and I like to help in this way, that's, that doesn't necessarily help unity. It's about identifying needs and, and then saying, well, what can I do? if I can, if you'd like me to help you with that need, which could be emotional, could be spiritual, could be practical. First uh, John 3, uh, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He knew our needs, so he did that. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And this is what Jesus did for us. Identified our need and get, did what was necessary for us to have our need met, which led to us being unified with Christ, with God, and having the spirit of unity given to us. And that spirit of unity is what unifies us. I mean, I, I really enjoyed being together today. I'd love to have more discussion about this. There's so much we could talk about. Uh, and I don't want just to, to, for the service to go on too long, but what I'm enjoying here is hearing from everybody's voices. So nice to hear from uh, Alison and Simone in the uh, group I was in and to enjoy that and to be unified in that sense with somebody from, from Boston uh, all the way across the pond. 
and and this is this is what is wonderful and leonora lovely to have you uh, with us today as well and talking together and listening to one another is a way for us to develop our harmony and to find ways to help each other so that we can be the body that shines out as an example of true unity to to the world around us jesus is the one who gives it to us so that's why we stop each week to think about the cross and to take some bread and wine because it's a reminder of what it cost us no it's a reminder of what it cost god to give us the harmony between heaven and our own hearts so let's pray together and then we'll take the bread and wine 